All right, stuff going on. What was the first point? The first one was... All right, first one was mini bands. Glute meat, yeah. Uh, yeah, so mini bands and glute meat, when and why to use them. Start us off, man. So are you. All right, my man. So pretty much I think using mini bands, so it's not the be all end all here, and this is where people really need to understand it. It's like, I think it's a great way to get a bit of awareness in like someone's like, you know, the glute meat, glute meat, whatever. Um, I think it's a great way to get awareness. I think where people go wrong is they think it's going to, you know, one, create size and two, create a high strength level. Because you got to remember, like, it's more, it's mainly a concentric contraction with a band. There's not real, there's not a real high eccentric overload. So you're not really gaining muscle. But when it comes to someone like a novice athlete that usually has poor control most areas of their body, lumbar pelvic area, foot ankle complex, scapular thoracic area, using like a mini band, in a way, say, around their knees, can be just a simple way of getting a bit more awareness around that, those lateral hip muscles. So when it comes to warming up, I think it's a great way that you can use utilize it when they're that novice, but there needs to be transfer. And I feel like that's where people go wrong. It's like, you can, like, it's great from an isolated perspective, like putting them someone in clam position, just getting awake. But I think it's important that we transfer this to just moving your body and being able to utilize all your muscles together. This is where I think yoga comes in a lot. And I've really tried to use different flow movements in my warm up as well, just mm -hmm. because it's like, okay, nice. You can wake up a muscle in an isolated setting, but can you use all your joints together? That's the whole point. It's not just about fucking external rotating or abducting your leg. It's like, great. You can wake it up, but now can you use everything together? Can you move through a flow? Can you breathe at the same time? And then can you go into your strength movements? And that's where that that's where that the main part is. Can you move through can you move your body efficiently? And then can you move to your strength exercises, do that, or whatever movements you're gonna do? And that's where I think the transfer isn't high. People are either just doing bands and they're just like they're band, 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 but nothing else. It's like, well, hold on a second, okay, nice. You gain a little bit more awareness. Now what are you gonna do about it? It's like kind of like it's tipping the iceberg. But it's like one, one. Now you've kind of like okay. Now I know. How it's to just segueing you in essentially. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm like you know. It, there's no like. I'm not saying bands are bad or bands are good. Like amazing. It's just like it's just a great tool to use if you yeah, really feel like. Yeah, it's just a great tool to use because like how many people struggle to wake up like any muscle in that matter. Like when you get a novice athlete, like so many athletes they just struggle to really contract that muscle, get some high neural drive. So it's like. When you're working with them, it's like, okay, at the start, get them, you know, release them up, mobilize them, grace them going, and then prime those muscles. Then, like you said, it's a segue. They need to move forward from that. They need to, you, it's like you've awakened everything. Where do we go from there? Yeah, 100%. I, so I pretty much would agree with the majority of things you've said there. The only, it's not necessarily with like glute mead, mini bands. When you're walking up, generally the same position. In this instance, obviously being like knees out, sort of glute mini band with whatever exercise you're sort of choosing, because there's obviously like a million and one things you could do under the sun. It's the same sort of 50% of that movement. So like say, if I'm thinking of a hip perspective, yeah? It's a lot of ER and I'm pretty much concentrically driving that as hard as I can without much focus on the opposing end of the spectrum. So I'm essentially training like that, that 50% of from here to here, but from here to here, doesn't get the same attention, doesn't get the same TLC, and then often gets quite neglected. And like, as I think the whole industry is getting better in terms of seeing that knees don't have to be up absolutely everything. IR isn't going to explode your joints when you enter that, whether it be a shoulder or a hip. And then, yeah, the sort of the fact that that gets so trained in this sort of portion that people start and athletes specifically start biasing that position for everything. And then that becomes yeah. a bit of an issue when you got people trying to do a vertical jump and they're trying to do it like they're doing a back squat. Obviously, that is so subpar. Like you don't get yeah. a proper stretch of the glute because to get a proper stretch of the glutes, your hip has to enter that IR at the end. It's like Absolutely. That sort of spectrum of IR to ER to IR again. And then yeah, like I personally and for a lot of my clients and everything, I find that trying to apply a constraint without a stimulation in terms of a band in this case where I'm saying, all right, try and perform a squat and keep your knee between these two points gives them better awareness and control without necessarily needing to bring a tool in. Like not yeah. to say I wouldn't bring a tool, but I would be more likely to try and get them to operate within their own parameters of their body without needing external tools and the like to be able to get them to have that control.
and again, like everything in a tool is a tool in a toolbox. But if you're looking at it and you've got a hammer, like everything starts to look like a nail. Yeah. So it's kind of finding that balance of like, I'm not neglecting any range in my warm up. So like, say one day we might do a whole bunch of IR focus in the mobility and then the activation. So like with most of my warm ups, I have like a one, two, three. So essentially SMR, some sort of mobility work, taking the range of the joints and then some sort of, I, I used to look at it as activation in terms of like, I did a lot of like glute band walks, ski walks, stuff like that, side crab walks. But now I've, I've moved away from that more in terms of like a movement challenge, whether that be like how, how well can you step from this to this to this, but giving them that constraint of I'm getting you to activate your glutes through different yes. ranges, but without necessarily thinking about just this joint doing this one thing, one thing, one thing. So it becomes a bit more of a, it's a, I think it's a better bridge between a warm up and an actual exercise rather than a go through a position A to B to A to B to A to B 10 times. Yeah, oh, I agree, man. And that's where I follow my warmers. I base them a lot off um, athletes' authority, like release, grease, prime. Because like like you said, it's not just activation. It's like release. I think SMR is great. You always feel yeah. a little bit better. Like amazing. Grease, you got to go through mobility. Grease, but it's like putting oil in, grease it up, and then prime. It's like prime doesn't mean activation. Prime means is your body ready and is it capable for the challenges at the beginning? It might be completely yeah. different from person. Than exactly. Next, uh doesn't mean it's always going to be a clam external rotating and like you said that man it's so important it's like if we if internal rotation wasn't good we wouldn't be able to do it but it there's nothing wrong with internal rotation it's just time and place and it's context and like you said like when when your hips come through it's important that your doctors wake up and then that you go through internal rotation it's like at different times maybe through the descent of a squat maybe it's yeah that's a time where you do want you know have you corkscrew your feet and that's a big one as well i hate i'm not a a huge fan of the knees out. I used to use a lot, but it's like just driving your knees out. Is that, is that really what you want? Just, just pushing them out. Is that really going to, it's pretty subjective as well. Like in my view, the knee is essentially the bitch of the, the hip and the ankle there. Like the yeah. hip and the ankle are the rotational joints that have the, yeah. the mobility. The knee is just the sort of the stability. If your knee is having to rotate, you're clearly missing something either above or below in the chain. So yeah, like absolutely. getting those sorted and looking at more of a foot and hip perspective, because like if you've got your tibia externally rotating and your hip internally rotating, that's when you get that gross knee valgus that isn't desirable. But if I have yeah, that foot absolutely. entering pronation as my hips IRing, like that's an athletic position. Like you look at any any dunk contest from an NBA and like every pretty much every single person there is going off that triangle base because it allows yeah. them to get that elastic stretch through their glutes and explode out. Yeah. That's the sort of thing where like, I feel a lot of, especially like a lot of early days, like in most PTs, athlete development, coaches sort of careers, you get stuck in that stigma of like anything in internally rotating is scary. You don't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole, but you look at the positions you're training in the weight room and through your drills and whatever. And then you go out to game day and no matter how much, cueing you've given them in the weight room it just goes completely out the window when you're in yeah. that dynamic environment sport but no matter, no matter what sport it is they're all still going to have that same movement component and oh, your body's going to self-organize as best you see man i agree so much this is where like rehabs this is where it's actually good for people any anyone working with rehab it's like don't be afraid of that position because like most likely on the field they're going to move in for that like you just said there's so many examples Okay, when you land, you're not going to be landing in this perfect position. Yes, you want to try aim for it when you're in an isolated setting. But when you start exposing your athletes to a bit more challenging complexes or movement drills, it's okay if they move through that position. It's like, can they still be strong in an internally rotated position? That's what matters. Have they been exposed to it? And can they still recover? That's important. It's not like I need them to move perfect, perfect, perfect. It's yeah, like entirely. all humans. It's like when we're on you the field... Yeah, like, fuck, we don't always move perfectly. Yeah, just be able you want to them recover. to be able to handle that regardless of how much exposure they've had. Like, it's it's my whole sort of training philosophy falls on the, the sort of spectrum of rehab to the utmost high performance is all on the same continuum there. It's all on one blanket line. Whether I've just had a, an ACL reconstruction and I need to work on my knee actually physically bending with no resistance, no load, and I'm forcibly bending it, that may be here, but someone doing a 45-inch vertical jump is here. It's just knee extension. Whether yeah, it be here absolutely. or here, it's still on the same spectrum. And then even, like, improving upon that, like, the everything we do in the weight room is obviously conducive, uh, should be conducive to what we're sort of then leading onto the field. But 
at the same time, we're just trying to make someone a better human. So like, obviously the, the physical training is so big. So it's such a, an important factor there, but it's as much for the mind, like yeah. on that rehab to performance spectrum, you can have someone like you, you did your ACL when you were younger. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How much of that rehab was the mental side of trusting that knee again and being able to oh, actually load it through the position that probably had it explode? That, that, that man, that was a huge part of it. You know, going through that mentally, confidence to even like start playing, start kicking a ball again, start running again. Huge 100%. mental. Exactly. And then that, that sort of tailors in where that performance work on that spectrum should be tailored to match like being a better human, moving better through all ranges, showing yourself that you're not completely fragile there. And then I like to do that through exposing them to things that they may deem as almost too much. So like I, this past sort of, I'd say six to 12 months, I've been exposing a lot of my like jumping athletes to more like depth drops and the like and experimenting with them with myself. And like when you're standing on a six foot box and just basically jumping down and landing almost as hard as possible, trying to, absorb that force so i mean absorb but yeah absorb Redirect. The force. Yeah. yeah yeah exactly that's something that most people would like to be petrified of whether it be for their knees hips ankles or just the fact they think they'll break but then showing them that they can do that is then building them up without necessarily an adaptation occurring yeah definitely man and that, that's where it's important it's like our body is so much more resilient than people think 100%. and part of rehab is not just saying Oh, you physiologically adapted. Um, you've mm. mentally adapted as well. You've trusted your body again. And that's where it's like doing a couple clamps not won't necessarily make you feel more confident. It's not making really yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exposing someone to hard landing positions, exposing someone to trying to jump and then give them a shove and then getting to land, they probably won't land well, but they recover and they're still on that one leg. They're like, Oh wow, and I'm okay. It's like, well now they feel a little bit better. Hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. I agree. And it's completely. like like you said, like physiologically, maybe that their power output didn't go wall through the roof, but it's just trusting the body again. And that's, but that's, that's like, exactly it. Like the best weight room athletes and just athletes in general aren't always the best competitors in a sport. Yeah. That, like that sporting skill, obviously completely sort of different conversation there, but that is going to be that mental side as well. But you don't have to be the fastest, the strongest, the biggest to be the best. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And like, obviously the skills number one. That's the biggest 100%. thing. So in pretty much in like, so overall, like bands can be good to create awareness just so you can feel like, okay, this is where I can be. Oh, this is how I do a certain move. Like say, say when you're doing like a ladder walk, I don't mind it because like teaching you how to correctly move through the, like push off that back leg, but there's got to be a lot more transfer there. Band is a very simple, simple tool and can be great when you're first starting off with someone but definitely needs to transfer to teach someone actually how to use their body and then expose them to different yeah, things. hundred percent. Even just, I guess the, yeah, like my gripe with most of them is for like general beginner trainers is that it never gets progressed. It stays just that one easy. That's it. Like, That's it. You get some high level athlete that knows how to move their body that has 20 plus years of experience or even this gen pop they've been training for their whole life. Like yeah, how hard is that same demand over and over without it being progressed and adding more like of a motor control component or a different plane of resistance or a different style of resistance or yeah, many, many ways to vary it. Oh man, I agree. And that's where like um, using a bit of yoga, like, or just like different movements actually just doesn't have to be yeah, yoga. It's just the motor control demand. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. It's like, that's the way your body's meant to be. It's just supposed to activate, relax and move through your different joint movements all at the same time. And that's why, you know, just different motor control demands there is great. And that's where, like, people don't progress their warm-ups. And I'm like, that's a big, that's the big thing I learned over the time. It's like, you don't just do the same warm-up the whole time. That's something exactly. you should progress as well. Uh, it's always interesting, like, as to, are you trying to get an adaptation out of your warm-up as well? Like, yeah. it could be yes, could be no. I wouldn't say either is necessarily better than the other, but it would depend on the person. I think, like, something that doesn't often get, the attention it deserves is just time economy. Like if you have two sessions, two 45 minute sessions with someone in a week, like, and they're not doing training in their own time, like how much can you really get done unless you are using every single minute, like as efficiently as possible? Yeah. Oh, absolutely, man. And this is where combining sort of motor control drills together in your warm up probably is going to give you the most bang for your buck. Maybe make a little flow movement. 
you know, give them 10 metres and move through different positions, you know, frontal plane, transverse plane, sagittal plane, and expose them to all these things. And one, you're probably going to hit mobility for sure because you're going to hit different range of motion. You're going to actually going to activate your muscles because when you move a joint, obviously the muscles are going to have to help control that. So it's probably a good thing. Like like you said, especially for time constraint, like like over time, because like, yeah, I get it at the start, you're not going to do as much strength work. So using a mini bands will be okay because you can sit there, you can do 10 on one side, you can do 10 on the other. It's great in that sense. But as you start getting a bit more high demands uh, in your program, making sure you are warm up so efficient is important in terms of fatigue that. standpoint and time constraints. 100%. 100%. All right. Man, I think, I think we took that <laughs> one off the list. We're going to run out. Next one was was it core stiffness? No, that was last. It, um, all movement rotation. I mean, have, I want you to start with this one because uh, I'd be intrigued to see what all you have right, to say. All right. Okay, hit let me. me just get my notes up here. Just okay, hit so me already. There's hit a me. couple different ways that I would try and explain this, depending on what what approach you take to it. First off, like if you'd say that I'm here and I'm doing a bicep curl, yeah, you'd say that's generally operating in the sagittal plane, yeah. In terms of bicep curl? Like, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 totally. yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Nonetheless, if I continue that curl, though, is my is my radius and ulna here not rotating around my elbow? No, of course it is. Yeah, it is. At the same time, if you think about the actual joint in a convex, con uh, convex concave shape, that is still actually rotating in there. Not necessarily Absolutely. ball and socket, but nonetheless, yes. convex concave, it's still rotating. So, like... In a fundamental sense like that, everything is rotation. Like, And then on top of that, like the coupling of movements in terms of external rotation is generally associated with abduction and extension. And then on the other end, internal rotation is assigned with adduction and flexion. And you're not really going to get one without the other because they're all so interlinked there. Yeah, so it's kind of... how body works. Exactly. So it's kind of looking at it through a different lens to to see that what I'm doing here may not just be in a single 2D perspective of like straight up and down. Yeah. And then like even something like a leg extension where most people would view that as one of the most sagittal exercises of all, like your knee has a screw home mechanism like at the end that essentially locks itself to be able to provide you with so much more strength and stability and then tighten the, lead, the knee ligaments to provide further stability within that knee as well and handle more compressive force because obviously we're designed to be efficient. So when I stand and I stand on my heels with my tibias and femurs and hips and spine all stacked on one another, I'm not having to provide as much muscular work there because I'm standing on my bones. So it's the sort of thing there where everything does fall back to that rotation perspective in my yeah, opinion. I, no, absolutely. And this is an interesting thing because I actually started thinking about this a while ago. So this, this It's a bit of a rabbit point. hole. Yeah, this uh, kind of brought, brought me back some brought back some memories from year twelve. I was like, this is good and bad. Um, <laughs> so I looked at the equation. This is made me think about the equation we learned um, in PE, and it was like linear velocity equals angular velocity times radius of rotation. I was like, <laughs> okay, back when when I, back then when I was thinking about it, so you're saying anything that moves linearly or anything with like yeah, so anything that moves linearly has, like is coming from a radius of rotation, right? So there's a radius, there's something that's rotating. And it's obviously the speed at which the angular movement is occurring, right? Yeah. And it started to make sense. And I was like, okay. And then you think, it, you put it into perspective from like, like a biomechanical perspective, like when someone's running. Like say, the, if you look at the leg rotating, like, you know, around the hip or like whatever is happening. Like you said, all these joints that are moving, there's rotation. And it starts to make sense that projection, like any linear projection comes from rotation. Exactly. It's a rotational nature. Even if it's a minute sort of amount, like in yeah. a broad jump. I'm still having to rotate both hips and my pelvis and segment everything as I'm moving there. Even though I'm moving in one direction to achieve that, my body is essentially, uh, if this is my spine, I'm rotating all my limbs around that point because I'm like a centralized sort of pillar for lack of a better term. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, that's what creates an axis and then moving around that axis as well. Um, and I think this is interesting because in terms of application, I think this is where we're going back to our warm up in terms of movement control. That that's why it's so important, whether it be like any yoga movements or just movement control drills are so important because your joints need to move and move together. 
like you said, external rotation, extension, internal rotation, like, you know, ad, like adduction, et cetera, or what, whatever you're talking about, okay? Yeah. In terms of that sense, it's important that your joints move together because they need to rotate correctly. Because when, obviously, when your body starts to work together well, obviously, that's when you can express force a lot more efficiently, yeah, et cetera. So, you move fluidly. So, yeah, fluidly. And that's, that, that's the best way of putting it. And so from an application perspective, just allowing your body to work together is important. 100%. And like, uh, even like, if you talk about the way we summate momentum as well, like say, I don't know if, like, like slings, right? With the fascia slings as well. Yes. Like this, this can be a different way, like creating like rotation, obviously to summate force. It's not just like a muscle just goes and then like, that's, like, exactly. that's force there. The, the, the muscles themselves yeah. don't transfer the force. It is the, like generally the connective tissue, the fascia, the tendons, Absolutely. The ligaments, all of that. Yeah. And even like bones to a degree, like obviously they're not anywhere near the same threshold as the others, but you look at like an MBL's pitchers, like dominant pitching hand versus their non-dominant hand, their humerus, radius and ulna have all been found to be like double the thickness of the, of the <laughs> side. Like, and that's bone. Like it shows you that the adaptation is there for transferring that force through, it, it, whether it be it transferring the force or just being actually like the support, the scaffold Alrighty. that everything else is around. But you yeah. imagine like the torque that someone like say Cristiano Ronaldo would put into his free kick leg when he's yeah. absolutely nailing a knuckleball. Like that sort of adaptation occurs because he has to give it that demand of transferring that force. Well, yeah, and the bone, because bones adapt to it. This is where people don't know, they're like, oh, what, bones adapt? Like, you know, you yeah. can increase your bone density as well. It's like, you break your leg, it's gonna recover, ideally. Yeah. Yeah, because your bones recover. Yeah, and um, that's where it's like, like you said, it might not necessarily be to actually the transfer the force, but tolerate the force as well, and that's important because like you're going to be producing a lot of force, you're going to create a lot of rotation around your joints. It's like the bone's going to have to tolerate that as well. Because if it doesn't, then that's that's where you're going to deal with issues. So that's where it has to. That's be yeah, that that load being here and your capacity is here. That's in that injury threshold. Yeah, like whether you whether you believe you can predict injuries or not, like. I'm sure you can agree that load being over your capacity to handle it isn't very sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. And this is like, it's interesting. You, so you come from a quite a cross background as well. Like there's a lot yeah. of rotation there, like oh, in terms yeah. of like slings and stuff, like how would you say you try to work that all together in your training program? Uh, I try and taking a step back as to more just the preparing the body for it is obviously being quite capable in all three planes of movement or one plane movement, whatever, whatever idea you want to sort of go down there. But like it's a good mix of a sport where it's not necessarily something like say baseball, where it is purely rotational, whether you be yeah. like a pitcher or a batter with a little bit of obviously outfielding and the like, but lacrosse is that sort of hybrid where I still have to run up and down the field. Like I'm still sprinting. Imagine it's something like hockey where you have lines and you basically go on, work hard for 45 seconds, come off, have 45 seconds rest and repeat intervals like that. So it is a high sprint demand. Like I'm not probably covering more than, 6k in a game so it's nothing like soccer you cover like 10 to 12 pretty comfortably and at a at a decent moving pace with a lot of sprints in there lacrosse would be a lot more like moving very fast so being able to handle that speed endurance but also have that aerobic sort of base under you to recover fast enough yeah then obviously you've got the whole throwing demand in there as well like depending on the position it isn't as big for some as it is for others like a defender a goalie a midfielder to a degree aren't going to need the same like rotational ability generally because they're not shooting as much it's like having a defender be a really good free kick take like yeah it's good but you're not going to be striking the ball every time in the game yeah so so it's a positional demand as well exactly so it's a position it's a unique positional demand like a goalie is not going to need to be fast but they're going to need to have lightning quick hands and have a very quick first step to be able to get across the goal like a soccer goalie as well but being being capable and confident in your body to handle those rotational demands is an interesting one because a lot of different people have weak links in that regard like i see a lot of sort of ql and lower back issues generally on the dominant side of the thrower so like you have players that are equally good on both sides players that are dominant on one side and their back will generally present with issues related to how much they use each side whether that be they have ql issues on both sides because they shoot a lot with both hands and that rotation like every time i rotate my ql is essentially decelerating me and accelerating the other side as like a, a pop, a snap there. Yeah, absolutely. So making sure obviously that your core 
function, strength, and resilience is there for sort of high amounts of reps. And it's the sort of thing like, it's more of just uh, when you get to the season, just staying healthy because the yeah. demand is so multifactorial where you get like rotational injuries, you get con non-contact injuries, you get contact injuries. Cause obviously if someone's hitting me with a six foot metal pole, like it doesn't it's gonna hurt. <laughs> but end of the day, like it's still something you have to factor in there. So it's that almost that contact sport side of I'm trying to put on like essentially armor plating by having a little bit bigger upper body to be able to con like take that contact. Yeah, but yeah man. approaching it from the the speed and endurance and running side, the throwing and sort of rotational elements, and then the contact as well, and be able to have all three of those points relatively well looked after, and then basically progress into the season and be able to handle your skill work on top, because obviously man. that's the biggest demand yeah. and the most important thing. Awesome. That that said perfectly. I think you just said perfectly. <laughs> just outline that. Can we just like can we take that? Can we just like say something like that? Down <laughs> clip that. Clip that. Clip that. Um, I don't know how much. Do you know how much time we have just to make sure? So, uh, I think we started probably like ten after we were playing, so maybe like thirty-five-ish in something like that. Oh, easy, plenty of time. We'll be fine. We'll be yeah, fine. beautiful. Yeah, awesome, man. That that was said perfectly as well, and I think that's important um, to distinguish between someone's sport, like like what we're doing in the gym in terms of performance. It's like obviously 100%. you understand cross, and you so you can go a little bit more in depth. But if I'm going to work with a more of a rotational athlete, right, I'm going to make sure they're cause resilient, they have a lot more rotational power, and they can, under the fatigue, still have a lot more rotational power. They can decelerate, be reactive with it as well. But it's not like I need to get a stick out and I need to practice it because I know they're going to practice yeah, it on the field. It's just more of a, can they be explosive? Can they tolerate the load through that muscle? Um, and I, am I keeping them healthy as well? Through all areas of the body pretty much how I'd break down a sport that I wasn't as confident. Like if I get something like, I don't know, maybe something like a volleyball athlete, where I'd understand the general premise, but maybe not know the nuance of the sport as much, but it's still just deconstructing. Like whether I go by like a, a sort of bonder chuck, like dynamic correspondence of how well this position translates, like a bit transfer. Of, yeah, or yeah. if I'm just taking like a GPP, like I want you to be strong, fast, mobile, and like quick. You can go really either route. Like you can make an argument for both sides. So it's kind of it kind of works. However, you're going to be able to work it, provided the quality of the training is there and the rationale for I'm having you do this because we're aiming for this, rather than just throwing yeah. the data to that board. So yeah, like, and that's that's, that's pretty much how I deconstruct sports that I'm not as familiar with. Like I look the sport. All right, they need to be up. This is the position, and then this is the traits they need. This is how I want to train. The, this is where the athlete is at now this is how I want to train the traits and this is how I want to move forward. And that's kind of like a backwards five-step plan. We're also at 30 minutes, by the way. Connor gave me a little tip to, to check that. Oh, how do you okay. break down so, your sporting athletes so you aren't as familiar yeah, with their sport? Same idea. I was going to say, yeah, same idea, exact same. And I think I was going to go back to the comment you just said about like whether you want them, you're just incorporating GPP or you're actually trying to deconstruct a little bit, be a bit more specific with that dynamic, uh, the theory of correspondence, right? I think it comes to the context and time of season. When we're looking at the off-season, I think that's a great time to, like with a basketball athlete, like they might only do accelerations, right? In the off-season, there's nothing wrong with exposing them to max velocity. It's just yeah, because you want, like you don't always have to do what they're doing in the sport. When it just matters time of season, right, and what you're preparing them for. In a general off-season, you just want them stronger. You want them more mobile. You just generally want them to function better. Maybe moving into preseason, getting closer to preseason, you want the demands. If they're going to be a little bit more explosive, a bit more rotational power, depending on the sport, that's when you can start playing around with that. And then end season, it's like a little bit of that, but then also maintain and make sure they're healthy for the game. So, like you said, I'm the exact same. I look at a sport that I'm a little bit less familiar with. I'm like, I'm looking at certain movements, right? I might deconstruct a little bit, but at the same time, depending on where I am, I'm like, I also want this athlete to be mobile, to be strong. Can they work their body together, regardless of how you do it? Because in general, if we make humans use their body better, naturally they're going to be obviously perform a little bit better. Yeah, 100%. An interesting sort of thought train that I have been going down like recently, I listened to a Joel Smith, like Just Fly uh, podcast. I can't remember what one of it was. an old one like from like a year ago or something like that. And he was talking in terms of like, you get uh, like a high level athlete that's come off a competitive season, they're going to be beat to shit like, there's no yeah. two ways about it. And it's more, I would say at that point, like I'm not trying to necessarily improve them. I'm trying to keep them healthy, keep them able to actually express their qualities 
and even obviously depending on the stage of their career, prevent them from actually getting worse. Like yeah. time's undefeated. No one is going to be at their peak for, for their entire life. Obviously anything withstanding there, but like looking at giving them an antitoxin essentially where I'm trying to give them a dose of either what has been harming them. Like say in my case, in my personal case, like having QL issues from a lot of rotation in lacrosse, like, while you might think that laying off entirely would be a better approach to like letting that QL rest and recover, it's more of a, a it's a, an overexposure to the same demand in terms yeah. of that very fast, elastic, high intensity movement speed. If I'm dosing some slow, methodical, like tempo side bends or side planks or anything in that sort of realm where I guess I'm still working the same muscle, but I'm not taking it like say if this is the range of the muscle and I'm operating within here to here all the time for all of my power, my, my range is going to naturally start to shorten. I'm not going to need because if you don't use it, you lose it. So that shrinking, yeah. I'm going to be stuck within sort of here to here. So actually taking that muscle through the full range, loading it as appropriately as needed often can actually help like have that muscle performance, proper function, have it healthy, have it willing to actually handle those demands better. On the yeah. other end of the spectrum there, like on the other side of the coin, it may be I just need to completely change the stimulus. If I yeah. have a basketball athlete that is doing, I don't know, say a full competitive season, they come off that and their knees are both absolutely destroyed. They're shot. They've got mad tendinopathies going on. Like completely take away the jumping stimulus may be what they need to actually have that recover. But it's such a case-by-case -case basis there as to are they like so chronically beat down that I need to take that stimulus off and replace it? Or can I keep the stimulus but modify it so that I'm giving that muscle, joint, tendon, ligament, whatever it may be, or motor control issue, what it needs to be able to actually continue improving and getting back to the levels of performance that I'd want to see coming into a season. I, oh, I agree with that, man. And actually, like what you said there was perfect. So like say you decrease that, like, that tempo there, you're not giving it that same, that stretch reflex um, as you start to progress that athlete back, I think this is where it's important. Volume matters. And it's like, if some athletes, like, like you said, if they're just like fully beat up, like maybe yes, taking away, it's good. But you look at any like tendinopathy like issues, it's like taking away something and then just letting the athlete go back to it. It's not always the smartest idea because it's probably just going to come up again. Like issues are going to arise. So it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, the issue of treating the symptom versus the cause. Are you addressing the, the swelling through ice or are you actually saying, Hey, like, your mechanics are trashy, your feet don't move, they're locked in excessive pronation or excessive supination and your knees obviously have no counter, counter for that. Yeah, it's absolutely, man. Yeah. Oh, it's finding that balance and it's fine. Like that's where load tolerance is important. Like load tolerance, volume, like understanding tolerance and how much to expose, um, you know, and just and you just figure that out. It's like you said, it's case by case. There's no number. I can't give you a certain number. I can't give yeah, you 100%. a certain It's just like you figure that out through different athletes. And everyone's got their own sort of individual like tolerance there of like how well you handle training according to your like physiology, maybe completely oh, absolutely. like, and even then, like going back to the sort of correspondence we were talking about before, I think the actual sport itself can differ so much. Like the more open the skill of the sport is, the, the more you're going to be able to handle the same stimulus. So say something like a soccer player where you're not doing necessarily that many repetitive motions in a game. Like, obviously, a lot of change of direction, a lot of passing and stuff like that, but they're all pretty broad, and you're going to be in a lot of different positions. Like different scenarios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So, and you, then you compare that to something like a pitcher or like a quarterback or something like that, where they're going to go same. through a lot of the same positions, like so many times over. A pitcher, uh, like baseball is like one of my prime examples there, but then something like javelin, where yeah. there is, you literally want no variance. And then that's the sort of thing where, you're going to get those muscles operating in very specific lengths and positions. And that's what is, your body's going to adapt to. And like, it's, everything's got a pro and a con. Like, yes, it's an adaptation in the sense of we're going to be more consistent. We're going to probably be able to throw better because we're dialing in those positions, but you were also dialing those positions to the point where they become habitual and you're going to get stuck there. Like you look at a lot of really great athletes off the field. So someone like, you know, Zion Williamson. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Have you seen him walk? while he's not on the court or anything like that. Like, oh, he, he, you know, LeBron, how he waddles like a duck. Yeah. Way worse. Same, same worse. pattern though, but Terrible. way worse. So he's got that, oh. that like very turned out feet, a lot of yeah. pronation, basically locked leg. And he's just walking with straight rigid sort of hips. Yeah. But that is 
an adaptation when he gets on the field or the court because he's able to express that that power that he has in there and those positions suit that. Yeah, so it's kind of like that may lead to issues later in life, like someone like Blake Griffin now who's basically crippled, getting laid off by the Pistons essentially because his adaptations that gave him excessive power and crazy dunks early in his career have now led to multiple injuries and aren't sustainable. Derek Rose yeah. is another good example there. So an implementa- uh, implementation perspective of that, so like if you're dealing with someone like that, this is where you said like in the off-season – um, if they're just fully beat up from it, maybe you can either go away from it or you can just change the, the tempo at which they're expressing that force. Because if you think know, they're just going hard, they're expressing that. Like, because you said, like, they're adapted into that position. They're going to be, you know, they get, like you said, it's giving them advantageous positions to expose a lot of power. But it's like there's a point where maybe just re- reducing the tempo, reducing the speed, reducing that output, yeah. maybe can help them and just allow them to still go through ranges of motion. Train the position in a different way, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. Is it like, 100%. you know, great. All right, next one. All right, this is a good one. Is triple extension important? I like this. Do you want to lead off? Um, I'm happy to if you want, my man. Yeah, um, you got but, this. You got this. All right, triple extension. I think it's a byproduct, all right? So I think it's a byproduct of projection. When you see an athlete project themselves when they run, when they're Olympic lifting, whether they're projecting the bar or themselves, I think it's a byproduct. Mm-hmm. It's important, but to a degree. I think when we're talking about triple extension, it's a range. I hate when people say, like, people like say, oh, my God, you're gonna be, he's not fully locked out. Oh my, he hasn't expressed the most amount of power. It's like, well, hold on a second. That's not necessarily true. I think it's a range. And when we're looking at the way someone projects himself, I think it's important that we look at things like RFD. Because you, you can go through triple extension, right? But you can not project yourself far. I can triple extend, but who says I've accelerated quickly? It's not necessarily true. Now, I'm not saying triple extension is not important. But I'm saying the RFD component, what, what's happening throughout that motor skill, whatever motor skill it may be, is critical. It's the way okay. someone expresses force and ha- their power output through that position is so critical. Because like, like we've looked at before, you don't necessarily, like triple extensions of range, you don't necessarily go through, you don't, you don't necessarily extend your knee fully. You know, because if you lock out, sometimes it can be more detrimental. You see a sprint, if they fully lock out their knee, by the time they get in that recovery phase, it's too late because they've, they've had to go through full box. Exactly. It's, it's a pro and a con. You may, get that, you may get that like 2% more like oomph out of the step, but if that costs you then 5% of time to recover, that's a net yeah. loss. Yeah, absolutely. And like, that, it's a, like that, that's where you need to look at it. It's like, okay, wow. Yeah, maybe you maybe fuck, you just spilled the water. Maybe you can produce more force. Get enthusiastic. That. Yeah, no, I'm getting real excited now. <laughs> this is important. Like, maybe you can get a little bit more power output out of that last lock, but is it going to be detrimental to the skill? Like we just said, running. If you, you see a lot of the sprinters, they'll get they'll, they'll extend right and they'll get in a, an, a, like a good range, like a great range, but there's no need to get that little bit further because it's going to affect that recovery phase and bringing that leg in quick. Because then they're going to start That's swooping it. out. They're going to start overstriding. Um, so this is where I think from a perspective of queuing athletes, it's like, I'm not going to queue my athletes to triplets because that's way too much to think about. Trying to think about extending all these joints through explosive movements. Because like I just said, triple extension is a byproduct of projection. Any projection movement happens quickly. So yeah. trying to think yeah. about triple extension is just way, way too complicated. Thinking about things like simple, push the ground away quickly, push the ground quickly. You know, I'm sure, and I think it's going to, fo- if they focus a little bit more on that, they'll get through that range and then they'll project themselves that little bit better. Um, and I, like, like I said, that's where it's important because it's like you can move through triple extension, but you don't necessarily project yourself efficiently. Yeah, what are your, I agree with Like, yeah, basically taking it back there, I, I feel that in a lot of like coaches' early days, you get so hung up on like 15,000 cues, but then you get an athlete doing something and it just goes all out the window. Like anything with that 90% intensity sort of plus, like queuing doesn't really mean that much. It's more the reps you've hit before that building into it to essentially program your subconscious just to, to be able to initiate it. Like you're an Olympic weightlifter. When you're in the bottom of a clean and you're thinking about driving up, like you're not going, all right, like I need my knees here. I need my back here. <laughs> you're just, you're trying to not let the bar kill you essentially. Yeah, it's in that high threshold range. You're just going for it. Same idea there. So, like, I feel that when you've got an external constraint, whether that be like a lot of a lot of sort of sprint coaches use like hurdles or like wickets essentially as 
where I want to have my sort of feet projection of foot contacts within using that as an external constraint where I don't necessarily have to think about like language. I can see something, but I can still maximally execute as hard as I want. So using that external constraint there is something that I've come more and more around to. So taking that back to something like triple extension and say sprinting, for example, if I'm trying to get someone to be, to project better off them first step or two, if they're in like a three point stance, rather than going like, Oh, I want you to try and attack the ground back, use your glute to push through your foot, whatever, whatever cues I want to use. I might get them say in like a, on their back knee. So they've taken a knee and the front leg is in there like a triple stance. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and yeah, then yeah. going, all right, you've got to explode from this position and try and get as far as you can. And oh, it's the sort absolutely. of thing where giving them the feel of what it should feel like in the initial drill that we're aiming for via a modified position there, I feel works so much better because I've given them something with the language, like what I view as a, a glute drive. They may have a completely different physiological feeling when they're performing it. And it may yeah. be completely opposite of what I'm actually aiming for. So me saying that might make complete sense in my head because I understand movement through these different sort of parameters, but they may be down, down here or something. And getting them to feel it and then make sense of it within their own brain makes such a difference than trying to cue some with language. Like, I'm sure when you first started coaching, you've done the exact same thing of like, I want you oh, to really attack this position, do this, this, this. Too and much, it's just the same thing for 20 yeah. reps in a row. And you're just like, you just, you don't get it. And they're like, I don't get it because you're not explaining it. And you get but frustrated, you're like, what, extend, what are you doing? Just do it. Exactly, exactly. But then you give them a way to be in that position and it's almost unavoidable. So like that's one drill that I referenced in terms of the knee down acceleration position there. It forces them to glide, drive through that glute because they have to get up. They have to get off that ground to be able to project themselves forward. So there's no way that first step can't be a long, aggressive, almost broad jump like step. Oh man. So using those sort of, non-verbal constraints there is so much more effective completely gone down a rabbit hole but anyway going back to the triple extension yes yes, yes. Keep uh, going, keep going. yes i feel that without using those proper constraints and just really emphasizing to them like you need to triple extend yeah as you were saying leads to that overextended position that is often more inefficient because of whether it be a less optimal force angle from the joint whether it be a slower recovery or whether it be like incorrect sequencing of like that knee fully extending to try and then emphasizing that. Because I feel that a lot more people, a lot more athletes especially, have better control of the squat pattern they do over a hinge pattern. So if I'm yeah. getting someone doing something like a, a pogo hop where it's obviously very ankle and knee dominant versus like a stiff leg pogo where they're sort of bouncing off each angle but using their hips to drive it, often they have better control over the ankle and knee. So when I'm yeah. trying to say, like, use that hip to drive yourself forward, it, it misses the mark with a lot. But then, like, yeah, going back a step back there from there, there's obviously different running styles in a lot of athletes. Like, you see people that are so sort of knee-dominant, very very in front of themselves, like pushing forward, leaning forward, versus more hip-dominant, where they're using that sort of elastic whip-like function of their gait cycle to get that contact in the ground in front and then underneath them rather than just a straight down like piston essentially. Yeah. Like a, rather than, and tailoring how we're training that triple extension, like through sort of what, what drills, what tools we're using and the like can be very different depending on sort of what they're neglecting or what they don't have in that position. Oh man, huge. And this is where like, I think what you're saying before, even though you thought you went down a rabbit hole was actually really good. Um, drills people like especially when it comes to, like like whether it be running mechanics like olympic lifting anything like drills can be so useful especially like you say constraints constraint based drills where they just figure it out themselves and it's like say in an olympic lifting example when we find like a lot of athletes aren't like they're not finishing their pull in the snatch you give them a complex like a two snatch pull but uh and two power snatch complex what you'll see is after the two snatch pulls they're fatigued as fuck so if they don't pull they won't get it and it's like you said exactly They'll be like, oh, what did I do? It's like, well, now you know what you did. You didn't, they'll, they'll be straight away. They're like, oh, I didn't finish it because they try to get under it too quick because it's high. I didn't finish the pull. 100. And it's like, you're and then that, that movement there. Exactly. And then that takes, they can understand that feeling. All right, when I'm here, I just give that a little bit more. And they'll reach and they'll go, they'll naturally go through the triple extension. I'm not even fussed about looking at the joint. And it just, it'll teach them itself. And then the same with acceleration, like putting a cone out, maybe sometimes, like it can work well, depending on where you put, um, how you find it with, with what athlete. Like putting a cone out at the start of acceleration, trying to hit there, make contact at those points, and you just say, go, go. 
go run, hit each contact, 100%. and naturally, and then they can just move through it. And then as long as they just, and they can focus. And the more we take away the side, the technical side of things, the more they can focus on power. And like I just said, for enhanced projection, you need RFD. So if we can focus, if we can allow athletes to focus more on exploding harder and moving more quicker, then they're going to allow that the RFD is going to go up and they're naturally going to project themselves a lot better. And we'll still move in good positions. Yeah. It's an interesting one. Like I feel that with talking, obviously the drills and the sort of constraints there, like every coach has that sort of point in their career where you, you realize that like, I'm not trying to tell you as much as I possibly can about this drill to show you how smart I am, but I'm just putting you in a position to succeed. Like the less I have to say, ideally the better. If I yeah. go, all right, we're doing, we're doing split squats today. Cool. Set up. We've got this way. Start going. All right. Awesome rep. Awesome rep. Awesome rep. Good set. And don't have to say anything like that's a win. Yeah. Because absolutely. obviously they've laid the foundations there nonetheless. Like when you've got a, a beginner athlete, obviously you're going to be doing a lot more cueing, a lot more position setup. but the less words I have to put in for you to be able to hit the right position, the win. That's what yeah, you want. I, and this is where, when you start working with the athlete, this shows your competency as a coach that when you've worked with them for six months, a year, two years, when you move, you expose them to new positions, there's a lot less talk and it's like, give them one demonstration if they don't know what the fuck they're doing. Uh, exactly. and, then, and then they should just move into it because they understand, they understand because every movement's based around different movements. So if you've exposed your athlete to different movements, the frontal, sagittal, transverse plane, I'm sure they, after a couple of reps, I'll start to figure it out. And like how you made a good post, like first letting an athlete just try to drill themselves, they'll try to figure out, their body will naturally yeah. try to figure out what's the best way to complete it. And even then, like it's informative for you to see like how they actually whether they fail in this way or that way, or they compensate here, like that's more information to you to see about their actual movement and where their strengths and weaknesses are. Like what is the, the weak link in their chain, whether it be like a motor control thing, whether it be an actual positional strength, whether it be all of the above, just coordination. It could be many different avenues to go down there, but it just gives you more information as the trainer. Man, this is perfect because people always ask, they're like, wow, what, can, what complex should I do for Olympic lifting? What, what drills should I do for running? I'm like, well, it's, it's individual based because you should so look at someone, <laughs> how they you should see how they move and then pick the weaknesses and then work on that. That's how you do it. Like, that's why I just said there's a certain complex I use for athletes that can't finish that pool. Well, and snaps. Like, these, it's, so, it's so individual based. That it's like, there's, there's no just, oh, just go do this complex. It'll help you. It's like, well, what if you're great at f finishing the pool? but you can't really get under it and you can't catch it in an upright position. Like, mm -hmm. what if your bottom Completely is different. Sucks? It's not going to help you there, yeah. is it? You're going to keep catching it. Well, that's a big gripe I have with... Yeah, that's a big gripe I have with people just going, all right, oh, like, LeBron did this workout, so this has got to be a good workout. Like, that's what I'm going to do now. But whether it be a perspective in the sense of, all right, so he's done however many years of high-level training to build up to that, to be able to do that, to have that be what he needs at this time or on the other end of the spectrum, like an athlete like that, like you could, you could have him literally do anything, like literally anything. You could have Indeed. him back squatting on a fucking BOSU ball and that would get <laughs> him better because of how good of an athlete he is. But yeah. it's so, it's so not make or break in that sense, but you get like your, your average <laughs> Joe that can't perform a back squat with 40 kilos with correct form. Like that's so much more of a make or break there because their body isn't as resilient as that. Like, Lenorom Le squats are my favorite. <laughs> Connor, LeBron's known for very wide sumo, like probably this far deep in depth <laughs> squats. But does that affect him on game day? Like, no, because he's so no. ridiculously talented naturally. Yeah. So I mean, it's the sort of thing where like, what works for them doesn't necessarily work for you. Like find out what you need and go from there. If you don't know, get on a coach. Yeah. Oh, get him on a belt squat, exactly. Because, <laughs> yeah. like, and that's why we got to always look at the individual. And people are like, well, I don't understand. It's like, well, let, let someone move first. That's like, I can't just say, look at you and be like, you need this. I'm like, I need to see you. I want to see you move. And move through so many different things. It's like, when I see you run, it's like, like you said, those people who are a little bit more elastic, fashion dominant, they, they love that swing phase. And you'll see them straight away in acceleration. They just want to, they already want to start, they want to start whipping their leg. So maybe finding more tools where they can create that piston-like action will help them. Do you know what I mean? And it's the sort of thing like there with, with that, like depending on the drill, it's going to favor a different style of athlete. So like obviously talking like hip-dominant elastic running versus sort of knee-dominant, very like 
pushing towards the ground. Like yeah. if we're doing 20 meter sprints, what I'd say that the knee dominant athlete is going to be better in that sort of drill and express themselves better because they're in the position they want to be for expressing their force in the best angle they can. Whereas a hip dominant athlete isn't going to really hit their stride, so to speak, until top speed, whether that be 25, 30, 35, depending on obviously how fast they are or what their max speed is. But they're not even going to get close to that spot. So like trying to wait the correct drill for that person as well to get that adaptation. Yeah, absolutely. Because like then like you got this neat, highly knee dominant athlete killing the acceleration, never exposing to max velocity. And like then you see them run once they've got all this momentum and they're like just breaking down the collapse. Exactly. They can't handle the They're still trying to accelerate. Yeah, he's still trying to lean for it. I'm like, well, hey, 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 and this is Even where then, like going going back to the sports as well. Something like basketball, where because of just the the size of the court and the amount of people and where they sort of obviously laid out, rarely does an athlete hit top speed. But no. they spend so much time in that acceleration phase that that gets so much more training. Like I don't know if you've ever seen a basketballer try to accelerate as like a sprint without a court or anything around. Generally, they look quite funny, like compared to an NFL athlete or essentially any other sport where someone hits top speed. And obviously, all ball sports are going to have variances in their sprinting technique that make them not sprinters. A soccer player is going to have a lot Fucking shorter terrible. steps terrible. in general. A basketball is going to be a lot more leaned over because they're going to be protecting the ball while dribbling. A lacrosse player is going to have weird arm swing because they're cradling a stick at the same time. So it's like tailoring what are you sort of almost not getting in your sport there? Oh, if you've never worked top speed, you never get there, but you spend so much time in acceleration. Maybe we need to balance that out. Or maybe we need to make your acceleration more resilient in the position, the positions of acceleration more resilient to be able to handle that higher load there. But that's yeah, not a, this or this way is the way it's like a case by case. I need to assess like, is this your weakness? Is this your weakness? Oh, and then and step back and like view it from there. This is where we go back to saying, like, at the end of the season, if they're beat up, exposing a basketball to some top-end speed, there's nothing wrong with that because they've just gone through accelerate, accelerate, you know, accelerate so much knee dominance. It's like exposing them to a bit more, you know, flying sprints where they're just focusing on that top-end range. There's nothing wrong with that. It's like, Hundred. does that mean on the on the court they're going to accelerate faster? I can't really promise you anything because it's probably not. Because But it's like, does it allow their body to just recover a little bit, try something different, allow it to still move and function well and do something they haven't probably done? Yeah, of course. Exactly. It's the sort of thing where, like, obviously, a lot of athletes going through their off-season don't necessarily balance what demand they need to be able to come into pre-season with. Like, you might get someone that's just starting a soccer season that might strain their quad or something like that because they haven't appropriately balanced everything going in. Like, no shots for Julian, by your fame, you, you. Julian, hold on. But, yeah. was, that, was that you? And it's the sort of thing where you need to be able to obviously balance everything going in to have what you need. Yeah, absolutely, man. Oh, too good. Right, we've got five, we got five more minutes here. Let's move on to the last one. All right, last one. I was going to say, we're, we're killing it. All right, last one. <laughs> Core stiffness in running, intrinsic or cured? Hit it. So my, my viewpoint, like there's, there's two ways to look at this. I think stiffness is one way you could term it, but I would, I would prefer the term of stability. The definitions are essentially the same thing. Stiffness is the extent to which an object can resist deformation in response to an applied force. That's stiffness. Stability is the state of being resistant to change and not prone to wild fluctuations. But within those two sort of slightly different terms, which almost mean the same thing, Stiffness generally implies that there's more tension added to the system there in the sense I'm contracting to stay stiffer to resist being moved. Whereas stability is, I would say, more of a proprioceptive, almost balance sort of orientated trait, for lack of a better term there, in that I can stack myself to avoid the, the uh, deformation forces without necessarily needing to add more tension to the system. Yeah. And the reason being in terms of, obviously, distance running versus sprinting i'm sure we're both more talking in terms of sprinting at the moment because in distance running obviously core stiffness isn't that big of a thing obviously more just efficiency less tension in the system equals more efficiency there yeah less running is of less oxygen so on and so forth but in terms of sprinting being able to de-stress that system because obviously everything's operating at 100 percent intensity there and you're trying to maximally output by taking away from some of that stiffness. If you can still hold the stability of that position, I think that's a positive. Yeah, Being less absolutely. stiff 
allows you to move better through your sort of range and having, well, obviously in terms of something like a, a psoas, yeah, when I'm trying to pull my knee up, if I'm using that to additionally contract my core and keep everything tight away from my pelvis and sort of anterior thorax there, it has to then relax. And because I've tightened it further, it has, it needs more time to be able to inhibit there, the muscle, to be able to then change phase from that sort of like swing phase down into the press, into obviously the recovery there. And taking out that tension is a, a good thing there. But in terms of cueing it, I think, again, it goes back to that more of constraint-based position. So like I, I've been going into a little bit like the French boss stuff lately in terms of taking the arms out of the equation, seeing how stable an athlete's torso can be when they're sprinting. Like you look at any of the NFL combine sprinters or, or like athletes that are sprinting or like Usain Bolt or any high-level sprinter and their, their torso, if you like track it along the video and the video is on a stable sort of rail or something, they, they literally don't move. Their head looks like it's almost floating straight yes. forward in space because they're coordinating their limbs around it so well. And that is that stability factor there. Like I could be as stiff as I want and tight, but if I'm essentially like jumping off every step, like that stiffness doesn't really lead to much. Yeah. Whereas that stability, if I can stay in the same spot without adding tension to the system, I think that's a huge net positive. Absolutely, man. Bless you, not much time to go, but hit it. All right, two minutes. All right. Um, I agree with everything you said. I think it's more just an intrinsic thing, just understanding positions. It's like the more you're going to expose an athlete to running and, you know, with different sprints, like whether it be tempo strides, flying sprints, whatever, and you, and you naturally put them in the right positions, that, that's what teaches the core to engage and create stability rather than telling someone to be stiff because running's fluid. Any movement we do on the field is fluid, right? The moment you start thinking about tightening up, you're making it slow. Yes, your output starts to reduce. You actually, you, you affect your output. And like, think about like when we're running, it's like, you know, compression expansion, expansion of breathing as well. That's a good one to understand. Like when we're, str- when we're striking the ground, what side's compressing and what side's expanding. It's like, Fuck! If we're just tightening up, we're just we're making it harder for ourselves to be yeah. more efficient. You're fighting yourself and gravity. Yeah, you're fighting yourself, like your body. And this is where it's like, as long as you expose them to the right positions, you're teaching them to keep their hips high, to not collapse. You know, to create that knee drive, to you know, uh, reduce that excessive sweep. All these things that you want to teach them, and they're running. And then you expose them to the just the natural form of running. Naturally, they will get better, and through their expansion compression they will create that stability. Like they will just, at the moment, it's, it's just exposure. That's it. At the end of the day, I'm trying to do Love this it. quickly. It's just exposure. You expose the athlete, <laughs> they're going to naturally get better. You tell them to start staying stiff, they're going to be way too rigid. They're going to uh, express that output as well. Entirely. Awesome, man. I really appreciate your time today. Great show. No, always, man. You've I got it done. David, I want to Everyone keep going. go follow, exactly, YouTube, Audrey Performance, Coach Decranis. Pleasure having everyone on. And I think we're off. Thank you, everyone. No, we're still on. We're still on. Apparently, oh, six minutes isn't the cap anymore. <laughs> isn't it? Is it still going? What? How long is it cap at, Connor? Still going forever. Don't tempt me. I'll do it. They hate us. They hate us. <laughs> no, so it was a pleasure, good. man. Really enjoyed picking your brain. I think we're obviously very similar on a lot of thoughts there. But good to have yeah. some slightly different perspectives as well there. Yeah, absolutely, man. I think it was just, it's so interesting because like so many of the things I've said today, I actually, I will be honest, I contradicted myself a year ago and I didn't. But, but I mean, that's, that's a sign of growth nonetheless. Like my view is if you don't look back at what you're doing a year ago, and I mean, it doesn't need to be a, oh, like that's fucked. Like that is pathetic what I was <laughs> doing. But like, a, oh, like really? Did I have that in there? Like, was I doing yeah. that for this reason? Like, oh, it's pretty inefficient or it's not the way to go about it. Like, that's just growth as a coach. Growth as an intellectual in the sports science field. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's all the positive. Like, I'm the exact same, man. And I, I, I've been in the industry, it would be, this is my third year training? Yeah. Like, training people, training myself has been, I don't know, like, yeah, seven, eight, something like yeah. that. But if you're not learning every year, you're kind of just staying in the same spot and not really progressing anywhere. Yeah. And this is, it's so interesting. Cause like when we talked about that triple essential, I thought I was so excited for it because I used to have such different thoughts. I used to be what we were just saying, where it was this perfect, yeah. you know, triple extension world. And it's like, what's well, like, 
all these thoughts, that's what I used to think as well. Before I started opening my mind, getting different perspectives, looking a little bit deeper into what's actually happening. Hundred, so I think, I think anyone who's listening... Your box grows. Yeah. I think anyone who's listening, it's okay to contradict yourself. I've done it before. Hopefully it's yeah, not like, fuck, that was shit. But it was kind of like, hopefully it's like, okay, maybe the way I said things or maybe the way I interpret it's different now. But I mean, like, it's the end of the day, you do the best with what you have at that time. Yeah. That's if it. you're operating within this box and you're on the edges of that, like, if you're here now, that obviously looks very primitive. But at the time, that was the best of your knowledge. That was what you believed yeah. to be true. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's the best because, like, that's why we always go, we're going to have the best box ever. And it's like, I think that, like, before we go, I think that's where people try. They think about everything before they program something or everything before they coach it. It's like, just stick to what you know for your box and try your best there. And naturally, yeah, the exactly. you, and, and if you're happy to learn, naturally you'll grow. And then naturally you'll look. Grow and expand and then implement as you're able to. Yeah, exactly. Unreal. Oh my God. Don't get me. I'll keep speaking. You got anything to plug? Anything to plug? Well, all I'm saying is follow this man here. Such a smart brain. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Likewise, man. Likewise. Great chat. Great chat, my man. We're Thank you so see much, brother. Zoom with the others as well. So we I know. Absolutely destroyed them. We're gonna do a Zoom. All right, everyone who's listening, we're gonna do a Zoom. Jules, uh, Connor from Rev Performance. We're gonna get everyone. Will, we're gonna do a good Zoom chat, and then we'll put it exactly. up. Exactly. We'll just go rant for like just five hours. Be careful, guys. Connor's up his prices now, so he's he's worth a mint. Yeah, watch out, watch out. He's he's real Big up baller. there. Now. <laughs> I love it. Follow Audra Performance on YouTube as well, guys. Getting that started. I have a, a mighty following of about 10 people at the moment. So, yes. You don't want to be on the bandwagon too late, but you know. <laughs> um, right, don't worry. I love it. I'm going to follow it now. I'm going to do it right now. Moment too easy, my man. Uh, my man. Love it. Thanks for your time. No, same to you, brother. Same to you. See you, beautiful man. Later.